0: Hey there, I'm Brittany and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this message in our current series. Good morning! I was listening to Brittany when she said, I remember what they taught in Western Civ, and I was like, I was trying to remember if I even took Western Civ. Never mind what a lesson plan was. I think that's, a, that's the, the victim of, of age. So, we have been talking about unexpected Jesus. And last week, we started by talking about one of the unexpected things he taught. Today, I want to talk about the unexpected people, he thought. It's pretty common knowledge. And we've just finished a series around this. That Jesus was criticized for hanging with the wrong crowd. You know, the sinners and the party animals and the, you know, that, that lot. But what doesn't get as much press and maybe is even more surprising, is how Jesus interacted with women. How he taught them. How he gifted them. And how he called them. And so I thought that this weekend, we would take a chance to explore that a little bit. A good place for us to begin might be John chapter 4, because last week we were in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, and he tells him famously in those awkward phrases, you must be, you know, born again. And we wrestled with that. In the next chapter, Jesus dispatches his disciples to go off and get some food, and Jesus finds himself at a well. And at the well he meets a woman. It's the middle of the day. There's a lot to the story and we're not going to unpack it today. But at the end of that conversation, he does the most remarkable of things, and it's the very first time he does it. Here's what he does. In John chapter 4, verse 26, it says, "Then Jesus told her, I am The Messiah. So it turns out that this declaration to this unnamed woman is the very first time that Jesus reveals publicly, clearly, plainly, I am the Messiah. It's surprising, a bit unexpected, that the first time it happens here, like this, And to be honest, given the culture of the day, to her, to a woman, you read the whole story, she's surprised Jesus is even talking to her. But we won't create a whole case or theology around that. Jesus, time and time again, takes time to listen and treat and talk to women in a way which was unexpected and counter to the culture. That it's unremarkable to us today, 2,000 years later, is only evidence of the impact that Jesus had and how he treated women. But one of my favorite, and maybe one of the easiest to overlook and take for granted, takes place in John chapter 20. It's the first Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And the tomb is empty. And Jesus is there, but he's hiding, it appears. He's in the bushes. And Peter and John, they're there. They famously raced. And then they run in. And they check it out. And then they leave. And then, then, Jesus reveals himself. To Mary, You have to read it in context and watch how the story plays out. He waits until his beloved disciples, Peter and John, have left. And then to Mary, who's still there, he says in verse 16, Mary, Jesus said, And she turned and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to my father. But go find my brothers and tell them. Tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And she gave him his message. It's unexpected. Jesus holds this message back. He doesn't tell them himself. The first witness, the first declaration, the first exposition, the first sermon on the resurrection of Jesus is given to Mary to go and tell the disciples. And Jesus could have told them himself. But something is happening here, and we see it played out in the life of the church. But Jesus was turning things upside down. And frankly, what Jesus was doing was he was calling and gifting. and This was unexpected. Women and men for his ministry. And to be honest, we've been wrestling with this ever since. I've been wrestling with it ever since. Today's going to be a little bit different because part of it's just my story. It's the journey that I've been on. You see, I didn't grow up in a church environment that celebrated women's calling and gifting in the way you've seen it here. I grew up in a church that I loved. I don't want you to miss that. It was a good, solid, Bible preaching Baptist church that gave me lots of gifts. It was the outgrowth of the movement of fundamentalism of the 50s and 60s. And I don't really remember the 50s and 60s, but the 70s and 80s I remember. And I sort of lived through that period there. And it gave me good gifts gave me a love for the Bible, a love for the church, and a love for evangelism. I've always said those were three gifts that I will forever be grateful for. But along the way, it gave other things, and sometimes there were things that just didn't add up, that you sort of looked at and said, that doesn't make sense. And for me, I often looked at the role of women in the church and thought, huh, why don't we ask women to lead in prayer like we ask men to lead in prayer? Why don't we have women taking the offering or passing out bulletins at the door? That seems unremarkable enough. I wasn't ready for them to, you know, lead worship or preach, but I just wondered, why was that? And I think those thoughts flowed over into that beginning of Cape Cod Church. Cape Cod Church is now in our 30th year, which is impossible because I was here at the beginning and I'm not nearly that old. (laughs) But it's all true. Somehow there was a time warp in there. But 25 years ago, when Cape Cod Church established our first board, we call it an executive team, we decided to include women from the very beginning, and I remember hearing from some people that that seemed a bit odd. I don't know. It didn't seem odd to me. It seemed to make perfect sense, but still it was a growing process. I remember the first time we let women pass out bulletins at the door. It seems completely unremarkable now even a bit dim that we weren't doing it before. But there it was. I remember when I would occasionally be asked, Pastor, why don't we let women take up the offering? I never had a good answer. I mean, I had an answer, but I knew it wasn't a good answer. I remember the first time we let them This is back when we passed the basket. Remember the old days? (laughs) Pre-COVID. I remember the first time, we, we used to call them ushers. I think we still do that. And I remember it because it was completely unremarkable. It was sort of a, huh, duh moment. Odd little fact, we have always just called those, I guess, historic practice, those men and women who take a, now help you find seats, uh, ushers. It happens to be the same term we use for people who would lead in communion. So a few months after we started inviting men and women to take the offering, unremarkable as it was, someone asked me, oh, communion's coming. Will we be inviting women to offer communion? I'm going to be honest with you. My heart skipped a beat. I was like, I don't know. I hadn't. We were approaching Thanksgiving, and if you've been at Cape Cod Church long, you know we offer it twice a year, Thanksgiving and Easter. And I was afraid. I'm just being honest. I was afraid. I was afraid of a little bit of what people would think, and would somebody get mad and and leave? I mean, that's just human, but I get over that stuff pretty quick. But I was really afraid of, would I cross a line that God didn't want me to cross? And would he withdraw his blessing? I was worried about that. So we didn't do it. We talked amongst our leadership, and I talked with some women in our church who were leaders, and we didn't do it. But by the spring, by Easter, we were ready. And I remember... We invited two women who are pillars at Cape Cod Church. They have mentored a generation of women, young and older alike, Joyce O'Connor and Bev Chapman. And to be honest, in doing it, I recognized that along the way, these two women had mentored me that in their own ways, they had coached their pastor up. Now, remember when we came down and we stood at the front and they were serving, and I will say this, that moment was not unremarkable. That moment felt remarkable and beautiful. Now, I remember standing there, watching as they served communion, my daughters, and how grateful I was to be a part of a church that could celebrate that. And of course, if you've been at Cape Cod Church any length of time, you know that we have welcomed women to our stage to speak, women like Jen Merriman and Bev Roberts and O McSherry, and of course Brittany, who speaks on a regular basis for us now. So I thought what I would do today, because all of that was just introduction, was I would talk a little bit about how I, and I've worded this carefully, changed my mind. I, I know that word is loaded, changed my mind. I could have said how I've grown, and that sounds a little bit more successful. But the truth is, I believe this that all growth involves change. And things that never change are either A, perfect, or B, dead. I'm not the first, and I don't want to be the second. So I thought I would just take a few minutes to walk through the story, the scripture of how I changed my mind. But I want to say this right at the beginning. This is what we call a secondary issue. It's a debatable topic that Christians do and often have and will disagree on and should be able to disagree respectfully. And what that means is that we disagree without questioning another person's spirituality or commitment to Scripture, because they haven't come to the same conclusion as we have. So I wanted to give you three things. I'm not the only person who's been on this journey. One of my good friends, uh, who's the pastor at Grace Chapel in Lexington, Brian Wilkerson, has walked through this a little bit ahead of me, and his words of wisdom have been such a help and an encouragement and reminded me that we shared a similar path. And so I've benefited from his, his outline, so to speak. But I want to give you three things. First, I benefited from the whole story of the Bible and men. women. You see, I grew up uh, knowing there were two verses that just said no. In fact, if you're one of those Eager Beaver students and you were reading ahead in your notes, you probably read some verses and went, oh boy, where is this going? Because we've heard these verses and we've wondered, what are we do with that? And honestly, those verses in 1 Corinthians and in Timothy, those verses formed all of my belief around this. But what happened was that there was a gnawing sense that that wasn't the whole story. And when I stepped back and began to look at the whole story of Scripture and what it was that God was saying, I saw something different. You see, the whole story of the Bible and men and women starts in, this will be shocking, Genesis. And it starts in Genesis chapter 1. Let me read this to you. And by the way, I've included lots of verses in your notes, and we're not going to look up all of them. I just wanted to give them to you so that if you're inclined and you want to go back and read it for yourself, you've got it. But here's what happens in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. At the very beginning of that passage, it says something interesting. That in the beginning, God's design, God's plan, was for men and women to reign and rule over God's creation together. This was his plan from the very beginning. His plan that you and I, men and women, would rule together, reign together equally over God's creation. But we know the story didn't stay that way because in Chapter 3, we have the fall. We have... Uh, the brokenness of of man. We have sin entering the picture. And in chapter 3, verse 26, we have the introduction of the curse. And because of the curse, we have the introduction between men and women of domination and subordination. And we have this tension that begins to exist because of the curse. But mark this down. It's because of the curse, not because of the plan. And that is an important piece of the story, because it wasn't what God meant us for. And if you were Remember from the story project, what God is doing is He's now taking that broken world, that cursed world, and He's beginning to bring it towards redemption. That promise is fulfilled in the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But all through, you see God through His people, Israel, bringing us back to a picture of what He intended us for. And that means that we catch glimpses of what God is doing. That means that through the Old Testament, while you see the picture of domination and subordination, you also see the picture of God celebrating women in places you may not have expected to see them. You see it in Miriam, who acted historically as a voice of wisdom, as a leader to Israel, and as a prophet to Moses. We see it famously in Deborah, a hero of women everywhere in the Old Testament, who... Well, Deborah was was a judge and a ruler over all of Israel. Her voice mattered so much that generals wouldn't go to battle without her. God had called her and gifted her and appointed her. Or Huldah, who was a prophet to King Josiah, maybe the favored prophet, A prophet, remember, wasn't just someone who knew what would happen in the future. They were more a a voice of authority. They were a a voice of truth speaking into the life of the nation or into the life of the leader. And that's what God was doing. And we see that story played out through the Old Testament. And then we come to Jesus. And Jesus introduces himself to a woman at the well. and, And then he... He sits and he talks with women who nobody else would talk with. And when Mary comes and sits at his feet and Martha is outraged, Jesus says, No, no, she's sitting here and she sits in the role of a disciple. Remember, this is, she was doing what the the young men would do. She is taking the role of a disciple. And Jesus says, Don't correct her. This, this is the right thing to do. And then Mary. And over and over and over again, you see Jesus doing what was counter and unexpected in the culture, and then the church. And I'll confess to you, this is where it caught my attention. You see, if you're reading through your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John act as biographies of the life of Jesus. And the book of Acts acts as a biography of the early church. And then the letters that follow after that are the outworking of that. And so we see what happened. We see the outgrowth of this story and how it's played out in the life of the church. I remember going to this passage in Acts chapter 2, and thinking, how did I miss that? I mean, honestly, I've been preaching this for a long time and reading it. I think it's the first thing I read was the Bible, and here I was. In Acts chapter 2, at the empowerment of the local church on the day of Pentecost, it says this in verse 17. Peter is now speaking, and he's quoting the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. He's saying here, listen, the empowerment, this is what the prophet told you. The prophet told you that when the Messiah came, the sign that he had come, and this was his plan and his mission, the empowerment of the church, the beginning of the church was marked by the prophetic, authoritative speaking of your sons and daughters turns out this isn't the last time that we see women being lifted up for their prophetic word in the New Testament. We see Philip in the early church had four daughters who prophesied in the church. And we see none other than the Apostle Paul in multiple places giving instruction for how women would both pray and prophesy in the church. Okay. What was I gonna do with that? I mean, there they are. They're they're doing it, and that's not the only one. Lydia. Uh, Lydia has a church started in her house. I mean, she seems to be at the center of this effort. And then, uh, then we come to Romans 16. And if you're new to the Bible, Romans is Romans is Paul's most important letter. It's his Magnus opus, it's everything. And chapter 16 is sort of like the acknowledgements. You know the acknowledgements. That's the part you always skip over at the end of a book because you figure you've gotten all the good stuff. But chapter 16 is not just, it's not just the acknowledgements. Chapter 16 is is—it's Paul listing out all of these people who are his partners in ministry. And somehow I had, I had missed this. I had missed where he calls out Priscilla, And her husband, Aquila. But he always, for some reason, seems to begin with her. Again, in the book of Acts, it tells us that Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, but leading with Priscilla, go to a young, gifted preacher who needed some mentoring and taught him the way of Jesus. I was just reading that over this morning. Paul brings her back up in Romans chapter 16. And then there's Phoebe. In the very first verses of Romans 16, Paul commends Phoebe. You'd be forgiven if you, like I, just glossed over the verses. It says something like this: and welcome Phoebe. Give her, you know, give her my welcome. What's happening here is that. We think of everybody having Bibles, but the book was just being written. And Paul had now finished the writing of the letter of Romans. And he takes the letter of Romans and he wants to deliver it to Rome. And what he does is he hands it to Phoebe to take to the church in Rome. And he tells them to welcome her as they would him. This isn't, she wasn't FedEx. What would happen is the deliverer of the letter would come, would read the letter, and would explain it. One of today's most well-known and well-respected biblical scholars is N.T. Wright. He says this of Phoebe. Phoebe was the first expositor of the book of Romans. That's a ridiculously unexpected statement. But there it is. Oh, and then there's a few verses later. In the same chapter, in verse 7, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia is a well known woman's name in that region. My fellow Jews who were in prison with me, they are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. One translation simply translated chief among the apostles. There in Romans 16 is Junia, a woman who by all appearances was an apostle, or at the very least was a leader among the apostles in the early church. What would I do with that? Side note, a year ago when we Got our dog, and we were trying to decide what to name it. I thought Junia was the most brilliant name. But the family voted me down, and we ended up with Ruby. I thought it was clever, and people would ask, and it would lead to a discussion. I lost. Nobody thought it was as cool as I thought it was. Paul wraps all of this together in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Where he famously says, This big picture of what God was doing because of Jesus Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, or male and female. You are one. You see, what is happening from Genesis chapter 1 were God's plan, his intention for men and women to serve together equally in his kingdom and in his work. And then the curse breaks that and domination and subordination come into the picture. But he is on a redemptive move, working it towards and the work of Jesus Christ accelerates that in the church to where Paul declares there is now no more. The division, the struggle, the tension, the power between you that used to separate you and limit you, no longer does that. And if you want to see the picture complete, if you want to see the whole story of Scripture put together, then you look at Revelation 1, or Genesis 1, and Revelation chapter 22. Because when you come to the end of the book, you see that once and for all, God is bringing it back together. And what do you think it will look like in His kingdom when everything is finally set to right? We don't have to wonder. He gives us the verse, Revelation 22, verse Verse three, no longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and of the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they. That's you and me. All of us, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, they will reign forever and ever. God's plan has been for men and women to serve together equally. The curse will one day be completely undone, but he is calling us to be a part of his redemptive plan. Ah, but what about those verses, Ben? I mean, what do you do with those verses? Well, that brings me to the second thing. The first was the whole story of the Bible of men and women. The second thing that changed my mind was the context. Let me read to you the verse. We might as well go to it. We don't have time to go to all of them, but there are essentially two verses that people struggle with 1 Corinthians and Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the more difficult of the two, so let's just go right at it. In verse 11, it says, A woman should, please just remember all I've said to this before you react to this. <laughs> A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man she must be quiet now listen what do we do with this i mean clearly it contradicts much of what we just read clearly the early church was welcoming women to speak and to pray and to prophesy and their voices are everywhere and their leadership is everywhere so i mean what do we do with this do we just does it just do we just override it and say ah getting rid of that verse and honestly listen i know some people do that and my hope is that you won't do that i and i think we as a church have much too high a view of scripture to simply dismiss passages We can wrestle with them. We can understand them. And here's what we should do. We should understand them in context. I've said this before. A text without context is pretext. Remember that. You'll sound clever the next time you quote it to somebody. A text without understanding its context is pretext. In other words, you can just make stuff up. You can make it sound like whatever you want. We contextualize verses all the time. In fact, I'm going to do it for you, and I'm going to show you how you probably do it too. Let's just stay right in the same book, Second, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, let's go to verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intersection, uh, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 2 for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness for kings. I don't know about you. I can't remember the last time I prayed for a king. I don't even know a king. I mean, I know a queen, and apparently she could use our prayers right now, but I don't normally think of that. In fact, I, just, I very easily, probably like you do, contextualize this verse, and I take it as... God's inviting us to pray for those who are in authority, to pray for leaders. We we do that all the time because we understand the context at which this was written was the context of kings. Or verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Does that mean that only men can pray, and they have to lift up their hands? Because I grew up a Baptist, and we never lifted our hands for anything. I mean, I'm still incapable of getting it any higher than my waist. I mean, some of you are like this, and I'm like, oh, I, just, I'm, I just can't. And is it only meant for men to pray? No, we, we take that in context. Or how about verse 9? I want... I also want the women to dress modestly and with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And, and I don't know, some of you have nice hairstyles. And my guess is there's quite a few of you, men and women, who are wearing gold today. And are we breaking a rule? No, we we understand this in context, and we understand it in the context of modesty and moderation, and, and we apply it that way. We don't just miss it, we understand it, we contextualize it. And I'll give you one of the most important. If you go fa- forward a few more chapters to 1 Timothy chapter six, same book, same author to the same person. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this, he says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Well, what do we do with that? I mean, do, do do we read that and think, well, slavery must be okay, and I'll tell you for for some amount of time, people people took verses like this, and they made a case for slavery, but, but it's not a righteous case, and we look at it today, and we contextualize it. We know that what Paul is saying here, and we know it on the backst of context, because in Philemon, Paul tells us a whole lot about slavery. He tells us how that in the church, you're going to not treat each other as slaves, but as brothers. Listen, you may live in a broken world, is what chapter 6 and verse 1 is saying. You may live in a broken world where slavery is a reality, and it may be your reality, but here's how to live in a broken world so that the name of Christ is lifted up. Now, with all of that context, we go back to First Timothy. And seeing the context of how often we see women leading and speaking in the early church... How are we to understand this verse and what is the context of it? Well, it turns out there's a lot of context and we know a lot about Timothy and about where he was living in the church he was leading because Timothy was leading in Ephesus. And Ephesus was the center of the cult of Diana. And in the city of Ephesus, you can still visit the ruins today, are the remnants of the temple of Diana. It was a cult that was built around female sexual superiority. Female, literally, domination. All of the priests were women. It's in that context that Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, who's leading a church in Ephesus, Many commentators take those things in all of Paul's other writings and put it together and have come to this conclusion, and I think it best fits the story myself. Though, I'll say again, it's just one interpretation. Many have come to the conclusion that what's happening here is Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how to lead a church in this place at this time. Not for every place for all time, but for this place in this time because of the unique challenges that were faced by the church at Ephesus. And with that context in mind, we read, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. In other words, listen, this is a season for you to learn in submission to what God wants to do. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. As hard as those verses are to hear, we understand understand them in the context of that time and that place and what they seem to be saying is this is a moment to learn not to teach do not bring the mistakes of the cult of diana into the church listen don't bring the domination that women were showing over men into the church that's not what you were meant to be I want to say it again. This is an area that we call a debatable matter, disputable, a secondary issue. When we say secondary, what we mean is that it doesn't impact the gospel. It's not the center, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I also want to say that doesn't mean it's unimportant because it affects half the church and their calling and their gifting for the ministry. So I said there were three things. The whole story of the Bible of men and women, the context. But the third thing was what I would just call a surprising history. You see, I grew up in church where women had limited roles. There was a whole list of things they couldn't do. And frankly, I just assumed that's the way it was everywhere, and I assumed that's the way it was everywhere for all time. And it turns out I was wrong. It hadn't been that way for all time. In fact, it hadn't been that way for a long time. (laughs) If you go back to the 1700s and 1800s where evangelicalism, which Cape Cod Church would find its roots in that, evangelicalism finds its roots in the Methodist revivals. John Wesley, George Whitefield... That's kind of, it was the revival fires. It was the, we need to tell the world about the gospel, and we should use whatever means we could. And while those men started out objecting to women preaching and teaching and leading revivals, they both came around to change their minds on those facts. In the 1800s, William and Catherine Booth, you may be familiar with those names. They're the founders of the Salvation Army. If you've never read their story, it's fascinating. They continue their mission uninterrupted. On the one hand, social care, action, and on the other hand, they were, as the name implies, Salvationists. And in many places around the world, they cling to those things. And from their very beginning, they were famously offering an equal place of service to men and to women. In fact, Catherine would write a book on the right of women to preach. In the late 1800s, the Bible college movement began. I'm getting to where you live soon, so hang with me. The Bible college movement was an outgrowth of revivalism. We, we needed to have revivals and start churches and train ministers. And so Bible colleges, uh, famously, A.J. Gordon started the Missionary Bible Society in Boston. Some of you recognize the name A.J. Gordon. It became Gordon College, which then also became Gordon Conwell Seminary. A.J. Gordon famously... Encouraged women in ministry. In fact, he wrote a pamphlet on the same topic that women preaching and teaching should be the rule and not the exception based on Acts chapter 2 and the prophecy of Joel. A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance movement in New York City, who founded Nyack College. A couple of weeks ago, I ran into a girl at a coffee shop who was studying for ministry at Nyack College, and then I was reading this. Huh. Albert Simpson started Nyack and the Christian Mission, and from the very beginning, they had women serving at every level of leadership across. D.L. Moody. There's a name we all recognize. Moody famously believed in education. He started the Northfield Mount Hermon School for Boys and then a school for girls. In fact, if I remember right, the school for girls, did it come first? Don't quote me on that. And then, famously, Moody Bible College. White Gordon College and Nyack, still there. But at the beginning, they were training men and Women. In 1929, their alumni letter celebrates the first woman who would graduate from their pastoral course. And they began to tell the stories of women who were ordained and teaching and preaching and leading revivals. So what happened? Well, between World War I and World War II, the world changed. And it's a long history lesson. And I don't have time to go into all of it. But I would say two things. The center of influence for evangelicalism moved from the north to the south. And with it, southern notions about women and the fight for inerrancy came together and mashed up into a sense that the only way to interpret Timothy and Corinthians was this way. And if you didn't interpret it that way, you didn't really believe the Bible. And that's why I've made an effort to say this is a disputable matter. Christians come to different conclusions but ought to be able to do so respectfully without questioning another person's spirituality or their commitment to Scripture. Something else happened along the way. Evangelicals. (laughs) We're in a fight for respectability. Respectability. Revival colleges weren't enough. The revivalism felt kind of hillbilly and hokish, and we wanted to be respectable like, you know, everybody else and seminaries, like the elite. But the mainline churches and the elite seminaries did not train women. That was something that those revivalists were doing. In fact, Harvard Divinity would not admit its first women into its program until 1959. So we followed suit. But there is a growing, growing movement And I'm grateful that Cape Cod Church is a part of it. And other churches of influence to the Northeast, our friends at Grace Chapel in Lexington and Walnut Hill in Connecticut, are among some of the leading voices. Churches deeply, deeply, deeply committed to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture who read the Word and celebrate men and women serving together equally. That's a lot. Let me finish with one story. My mom and dad are here today. <laughs> they said, hey, we're going to come down and visit, and let's go to lunch. I'm like, oh, this Sunday? Really? I warned them, I'm like, you know what you're you don't know what you're in for. My mother's side of the family are Irish immigrants. My grandmother's parents immigrated here. My grandfather, when he was a teenager in the 19 somethings, early 1919, something like that. I'll get corrected after, came here. They were devout believers. They were part of something called the Plymouth Brethren, and my mother received her faith from her parents, who took her to the assembly every week, and then they had kids, and that church didn't have much of anything happening for young people, and so they found their way to a Baptist church. So all of my upbringing was in a Baptist church, but I was familiar with the Brethren because I knew my grandparents, staunch Plymouth brethren, devout, loved the word, loved missions. I just, what an incredible heritage. And then as a high schooler, I felt a call to ministry and surrendered my life to go and serve. My parents, uh, I don't think they've ever gotten over being proud. My grandmother, though, that was more complicated. My grandfather had passed away by this time, but my grandmother, you have to know something about the brethren. They love the Lord. They love the Word. But they don't believe in pastors. (laughs) You see the problem? (laughs) Little Benny's going off to study for the ministry. my grandmother would go to her assembly hall they called them on sunday mornings but on sunday night she'd come to church with my mom and dad our baptist church i have one of my most vivid memories of my grandmother would walk up to me and later when she visited our church in the plumbing building she would come up And she would take my hand and a woman not having two nickels to rub together would put a $20 bill in it. And she always said this, this is for the Lord's work. (laughs) $20 felt like $200. I mean, I have no idea if she ever changed her mind. What I do know is she celebrated her grandson. The most important thing to her was that the gospel of Jesus Christ was spread around the world and that she was willing to give herself to wholeheartedly. That's what I remember. So let me finish with this. If you're a young woman or a young man, and you feel God calling you to his work, if you're a not-so-young woman and not-so-young man, and you feel God tugging at you and calling you to His work, I hope that Cape Cod Church encourages you. I hope when you see the voices and the leadership and you hear the message and you see it celebrated, I hope that it encourages you. And if you do, if you do feel God calling you, leading you to give your life to him in ministry? I hope you'll be like Mary, and you'll go. You'll just go, because here's what we'll do as a church. We'll stand behind you. We'll celebrate you. We may even put $20 in your hand. I know this has been long. It's been on my heart. Some of you are sitting here and you're going, why did he do all this? This is our practice as a church. You've seen it modeled. This seems a little bit after the fact. I get that. I wanted to add some meat to the bones, some clarity to belief. And I wanted to encourage young women and young men who might be feeling the call of God on their life. Because in the next season of what God is doing at Cape Cod Church, he is going to call out of our midst dozens and dozens of young people who will serve him with their life. And we will celebrate them like our children and grandchildren in the faith. So let's do something different. Would you stand with me? I'd like us to to pray. I do believe that God calls people. I believe that he he speaks to their heart and he says, "I I want you to separate your life and I want you to give it to me. And I want you to serve me with your whole life. I think it's the highest calling a person can answer. And I just want to finish by praying for young people. As a church, I want us to pray for them. And the not-so-young, who God may just be stirring something in you and calling you. Could we do that together? Father, we're so grateful for the picture of your work, the redemptive story of the Bible of men and women played out for all of history to see. We're thankful that you call us men and women. And Father, as a church, we want to celebrate them. We want to encourage them. We want to get behind them and say, you go, our next generation needs you. So Father, for every young man, for every young woman, for the not so young that are feeling the tug of a call to ministry or missions, Father, on their life, make your call clear. Don't let us miss it. Encourage them. Give them a vision And let this church be the place that celebrates them and lets them see what is possible. And Father, we pray that in the next 30 years, you will allow us to send out women and men in such great numbers that we could not imagine the impact they will have across this region for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this message from our current series. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to meet you in person. We have services every Sunday at 10 a.m. in East Falmouth, Massachusetts or join us for our Sunday live stream on YouTube at the same time. If you enjoyed the Cape Cod Church podcast, we hope you'll consider leaving us a review so that other people can discover us too. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode.